You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series podcast, episode 20. This is a special three-part episode with a person who I could only describe as the Forrest Gump of medicine. She has been through everything from H1N1, COVID as an ICU physician, a new diagnosis of chronic illness, and a new diagnosis of stage four cancer. Dr. Maura Lip is here to talk to us about how to succeed in life. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Take me through how your next phase in life started. Um, so this past November, I, you know, I actually was, was feeling good, but then I started to develop some symptoms very quickly at first, you know, I just had a dry cough and I was like, yeah, it's fallen, you know, Tennessee, it's kind of strange. It's like, meh, you know, and again, doing the doctor thing, just assuming it is what it is. And, uh, but within, you know, let's say less than two weeks, I noticed I, I was at work and I was walking down the hall and it started to become very short of breath. And I said, okay, that's interesting, you know, and, uh, and over the course of just several days, I went from that to, you know, having, having lots of edema in my legs. And then my, I felt like terrible stomach distension. I said, okay, something's going on. So I went to, you know, our urgent care clinic one day after my shift, because I knew that they can do a chest x-ray there. And that was probably the fastest way. And so I went, I saw the nurse practitioner and, you know, and God bless, she was great, but she told me she'd only been working as a nurse practitioner for a year, you know, so she was young and new and uh, they ordered a chest x-ray and of course the technician as a courtesy showed me this chest x-ray, you know, before she sent it. Um, And I looked at it and I said, wait, there's something here that's, that's different. So I had a, an elevation in my right hemi diaphragm that I did not have. And I had previous chest x-rays because I had COVID, you know, COVID pneumonia. I said, okay, that's new. And when the nurse practitioner came in after it had been read by the radiologist came to talk to me about it, you know, the reading was pneumonia, you know, with Alex. So I'm like, well, I understand that, but I'm going to tell you something. I, I've had pneumonia. This is not pneumonia, you know? And now if I'm being really truthful, um, and this is an urgent care clinic. I didn't lay everything on her, you know, because it, it was just focused on one thing. And I said, if I'm being truthful, I think the problem is in my stomach. You know, at that point I'd had such, you know, abdominal distension. And I said, if I have a new, you know, diaphragm that's elevated, there must be something, I think there's something going on there. So this was like a Thursday evening. She said, would you like me to order the CAT scan for you? I said, I would very much appreciate if you would order the CAT scan for me. So the next day, Friday, of course I go to work, you know, I can (laughs) in the hall. Um, And, uh, but they call me and say, okay, you scheduled for your CAT scan today. So, you know, the radiology texts, send up that they tubed up the contrast to me and I'm sitting there drinking the contrast it's still working um, because again this is what we do right this is what we do as physicians we just I'm fine I'm fine you keep pushing through so I, uh, I ran downstairs zip zip got my cat scan ran back upstairs went back to work well within an hour I got a call from the radiologist and so when he was calling me directly and uh, not even the ordering you know physician I went oh you know something's something's going on and, you know, I, I, I remember the words I and mean, he said, you know, I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you this, but you have met, widely metastatic disease. 
And you know, your, your liver has got extensive mass, it's twice the size that it should be, and you've got multiple masses, and the largest of one was around 12 centimeters. Um, and, uh, and in an absolute instant, you know, my world changed. You know, I, I think when I went, you know, for that, and you always have this in the back of your mind that maybe something is wrong. When you have a test, you have to expect that they might find something. But I never dreamed ever that that would be, you know, something that, that they would find or that I would have to face, you know, cancer. I'm 47 years old. And, you know, my, my family history is all cardiovascular disease. You know, it, it, there's no one with cancer. And where on earth does this come from? And, uh, and I've obviously been walking around with it for a little while, but I had no idea. You know, my, my husband and I went to Hawaii in October. I mean, I felt fine. And literally in less than two weeks, these symptoms develop and, and, uh, and surprise, you have cancer. So um, I, uh, I, I sat there and my partner was there. I said, can you cover for me? I have to go home. But I, I hesitated to go home because I couldn't, I couldn't, figure out how I was going to go home and tell my husband I have stage four cancer. You know, that was the hardest thing. I, I don't know how I'm going to go and tell him that this is what's going on right now. And so that day it was, I, I walked in that day um, to work like any other day. And I didn't imagine that that would probably be my last day ever at work. Um, I never knew that this was, this was what was going on and this was what was in store for me. So I, I, um, the best analogy I can say, it's like being struck by lightning. I mean, you're, you're okay one minute and the next thing, oh my gosh, you're, you've got metastatic cancer. Um, I, fortunately, you know, and I, and, I'm, and I know I'm blessed. I know that, you know, that having the connections, of course, at the hospital and through the resources that we have, you know, I, I know that that's more than the average person and I'm very appreciative for that. You know, my next phone call after I got off the phone with the radiologist was to call one of our oncologists. And I said, hey, you know, it's like, I'm sorry to bother you. This is not the kind of call you ever want to get from a colleague um, and definitely not on a Friday afternoon, but I need your help, man. You know, I, can you help me? This is what's going on. And uh, the following Monday, you know, I was admitted to the hospital. I got my biopsy done um, and that was the week of Thanksgiving. And so of course the scramble was on to try to get the, the biopsy results before Thanksgiving. Um, as we all know how that goes. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it took several days in the following week when I got the results back. And, you know, at that time, the, the going, you know, thought was this was ovarian cancer. And so I was readmitted. And by the time I was readmitted, um, my breathing was much, much worse. I had literally gained over 20 pounds of fluid in less in that short period of time. And so I was readmitted to the hospital, was treated for that. And then um, induction chemo started right away. So um, all of that happened is that if that, if that was a different scenario, I mean, we both know how long sort of would have taken to have that whole process done. So, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that you, know, you, you can be connected and at least get things done very quickly. But um, my gosh, you know, it, it was, it's still such a surprise now. Um, all we just said was what the heck. All everybody said is what the heck. Like it's just absolute disbelief that this could happen. Yeah. And I imagine you're still processing all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I it, it still doesn't seem like reality. There's still part of the things I'm just going to go right back to my normal life, but that's not the case. You know? So 
I, I completed three, you know, cycles of chemo and then had uh, surgical debulking, you know, done. Um, and then recovered from that. And I have since then started chemo back for a subsequent three more cycles. And then we will see. And, you know, on a, on a somewhat of a humorous note, uh, which I thought was really funny is, is your impression of what surgery was going to be like based on your experiences and what it was actually like. Right. So, you know, the surgeon told me, oh, you're just going to be in the hospital for two or three days. And in my head, I'm going, there is no way. I'm like, this is an X lap. I know what that looks like. There's no way it's going to go that, that smoothly. And, uh, and, and sure enough, it did. And I was home in two days and I just could not believe it. And I had said to the surgeon, I go, you have to forgive me you know, because my experience with surgery, the only surgical post-op patients I take care of, I'm an intensivist. So the only ones I take care of are the ones where something has gone horribly wrong. <laughs> I have no idea what normal looks like, you know? Um, but no, I, I was amazed. And, and that's what he even said to you when I thought about it, you know, how incredible it is what surgeons do because, you know, I, I thought after, and of course, as he's describing to me what my liver was like, and I was like, well, you you're touching my liver. Like, that's weird. <laughs> it just seems so crazy to me. And I was like, but it is absolutely remarkable that, you can go literally get cut open. I said, like a frog on the dissecting table in high school, you know, wide open, a bunch of stuff getting taken out, put back together again. A, never know it, you know, thanks to the anesthesiologist. Have that be done in 90 minutes and then you come out of it like, hey, I'm fine. You know, it's absolutely <laughs> remarkable that that happens, you know. Um, and, and I know it seems silly to say, you know, as a physician, because you know, but when you really think about what it is that's actually being done, you know, the fact that a human being can be cut open, something taken out, you know, fixed, whatever, and, uh, and then and be okay, you know, after that. So it, it's truly remarkable, you know, but it was funny too, you know, like how little we think of our own specialty too. Cause I'm like, oh yeah, you know, we do it. Like, that's not a big deal. Um, <laughs> right. I did yeah, a lot of amusement yeah. of the fact that, of course, you would think it'd be terrible because all we see are the terrible things we send you. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be awful. I'm going to have like an G tube in my nose. Like, what's going on? Like, no, can any of that? You know. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, it was. It was. I was. I guess it's good that I had such bad perceptions in the beginning because then anything that can happen was only going to be good. You know, <laughs> for what my preconceived notion of what this was going to be like. Um, but no, it was absolutely. You know, it was, it was easy. I mean, dare I say it was easy, you know? So yeah, it's, it's amazing what you do. And, and as I was thinking about it, I'm like, God, the surgeons can do that. I'm like, all I do is give somebody a pill, you know, <laughs> or give somebody a bunch of adrenaline medicines and, you know, hope they survive. I mean, <laughs> it's, Wait, I think you know, it's, crazy. I have a different perspective. Cause I'm like, you know, surgery is easy. I go there and here's this hot mess. Can you make sure to keep them alive? Okay. Right. <laughs> I said, no, I just check a box in the EMR. Like I don't do anything. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was absolutely remarkable. You know? Yeah. And it's interesting because I, you know, you and I have talked because we're, we're similar ages um, about, you know, what mid career is like. Um, you know, take us through a little bit of it, your thoughts about mid-career yeah. and, you know, of course, how that's changed with your diagnosis. Well, you know, I think like most of us, when you get to that point, um, and, and then particularly, you know, for us with the effects of the pandemic, you know, you do find yourself working during the course of the day, stopping and thinking, do I even want to do this anymore? You know, does this make me happy? I'm just, 
oh, I'm just tired. You know, I'm just tired of this and I'm not sure it's what I really want to do. Um, yeah. I, I, and it's surprising, you know, when I found myself saying that, I, I thought it was very surprising because when you think back, you know, think all of us, right. We had the, the, the calling or the idea to be a doctor at some point in our lives. And, but my whole life, you know, it was one of these, I was one of these from a kid. I knew what I wanted to do. And you think about all the work that goes into getting there. And then how do you find yourself in a position where you're not sure that that's even what you want to do anymore? You know, so to go from being fully committed and, and gung ho to going, ugh, I just don't know. Um, but I think like I said, in mid career, I think all of us have that moment at some point, you know, where we stop and think, you know, hey, is this really, is this really what's working best? Um, but, you know, now that I'm where I'm at, you know, I had all of that really taken away from me very suddenly, you know, against my own will. Um, you know, I stopped working because I had this illness. It's not because I retired or I planned for any of this. And, you know, now that I'm in this position where I can't work, um, all I want to do is go back to that life. You know, all I want to do is, is go back to work. And it's crazy if I think I look, well, I was at the point where I wasn't even sure if I liked it. Of course, that was a different mindset then. And a lot of that was hypothetical. And then when it actually gets taken away, you know, I think that your, your perspective again changes, you know, drastically. Um, you know, from one where I'm not sure if I like this, but I still have it. My life hasn't changed. I'm doing this every day to I no longer have it. And what that does to you, you know, um, well, that's been really one of the hardest parts, I think, for me, you know, with this whole experience. And of course, there's there's a lot, you know, a lot of emotions for different reasons. Um, but losing that part of you, it's like losing your identity. You know, your my entire life every aspect of my life changed the moment that I got that diagnosis. Um, you know, not just professionally, but, but absolutely, obviously professionally, you know, it just got taken away and that hurts, you know, that's really hard um, to, to sort of reconcile your thoughts around. And so, you know, it's, it's one thing to be frustrated, but it's quite another than when you lose it, you know, what, what that really means. And so, you know, I, I think all of us at any point, you know, I mean, understanding how, how fragile obviously we all are because I never, no one ever expects, right? No one ever thinks that's going to happen to you. But I think we all really just feel like we're invincible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and even as an intensivist, I understand how fragile life is, but I don't think I ever really, you know, thought this was going to happen. Um, and it is suddenly you can lose everything. And and I know that you've done, um, you know, such a significant amount of work with palliative care um, and share with me how your thoughts are on, on how you counsel patients and families, you know, versus having to go through it yourself. You know, what was the mind shift there that occurred? Well, you know, I, we hear this all the time. I mean, and that, you know, even as a pulmonologist telling someone they have cancer with palliative care, you know, the, the, the things that patients say to you. And their biggest complaints are things that we really can't fix, right? It's it's the emotion of how, again, how their life has changed or what do I have to look forward to? Or, you know, I want to still have hope. And, you know, I, I think then about all of the things that I've said as a physician, um, you know, in, in what we do in palliative care and think, well, was that the right thing to say? Because now that I'm experiencing it, I'm going, wow, I don't know. Was I helpful? Was I as helpful as I thought I was being, you know, to people in that position, um, because now that I'm here and I really know 
you know, how much this hurts. And, you know, things along the lines of, you know, I don't want to lose hope. And then you would say, well, you can always have hope. You just have to change what you what you hope for, right? We all have our stock phrases, right? That, and that was one that you would use a lot. And I think it's still very much true. Um, I, it, absolutely true. But making that happen, so changing your mindset around that, though, even if you know it, having that be... Um, a comfort, you know, when you're, when you're feeling, you know, as, as bad as you are with losing everything, you know, it, it's different with just still, still believing that, you know, so, you know, I know that. And so I'm saying to myself, I mean, you know, I need to change what I consider a goal, you know, or things that I should look forward to. Um, it, it, it isn't about a cure, you know, it's not, it's about, you know, I need to be happy with, Hey, I woke up this morning, you know, or happy with, hey, maybe I can go on a trip with my husband and, and look at those things. Um, and I haven't figured out a way to be happy with that yet, but it's still absolutely, it is true. But putting it to practice is very different, you know? So I don't know even now if I would say something different to patients if they, if they said that to me. Um, but saying it doesn't mean that you can really, you can really teach someone to, to change their mind around it, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. What are some of the things that have helped you um, going through all this? Um, you know, like, what is your experience now saying like, hey, you know, this helped? Well, I think one of the, the first things I did was get palliative care at home. And I'm biased, you know, because I, I'm a palliative care physician as well. But, um, and I knew about the benefits for you know, people with advanced cancer as, as well as other things. Um, but now I can, I can say it absolutely has to be part of, of the regimen for anyone going through this because, you know, the ability to have, um, and for me, it's the nurse practitioner, you know, someone that you can just pick up the phone call, they'll come out to your house, you know, and, and as this changes, your symptoms changes, your side effects of, of treatment change, you know, having someone go through that journey with you, um, I think is tremendously important. You know, so I'm, I'm grateful that I did that. I'm, I'm grateful that I have, you know, a wonderful nurse practitioner. Um, and, and all my physicians are great too, but you just, you know how, how big, you know, the, the system is and how many things you have to navigate through and how hard it is sometimes to navigate through that. And so having someone that's there with you um, as early as possible to go through this journey with you, I think was, is tremendous. Um, so I, I knew it was the right decision in the beginning. And now I really understand, you know, why, and, um, that's so important for people with cancer. I think, you know, I'm, I'm blessed because I have a lot of friends, like there's amazing friends, you know, and family. I think about, gosh, what would happen if but people that are going through this that don't have that sort of support? I mean, my goodness, you know, um, that that's, that's really been, you know, tremendously helpful because it is ultimately, you know, it's ultimately a lonely, you know, disease. I think any illness is still lonely because at the end of the day, you and you alone are the one that's experiencing it and going through it. Um, but having a, having a support around you is absolutely, you know, vital. Um, so, so for me, I think those things have, have really helped, you know, quite a bit. Um, right. I know we talked a little bit about this too. I know that you, you know, were hesitant to share some of the details with your husband and, and other things and, and ask for help because you didn't really want to trouble them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, are you still feeling that way? 
It's still, it's still hard. I mean, because I, at first I, when it first happened, I said, you know, maybe I should ease my husband into this idea and wait till after I had the, even though I knew, you know, the can't scans tell you, you have enough information. I was like, I don't know if I could just drop the bomb on him. But then I was like, I, I'm not gonna be able to hide it. I can't hide the emotion. So as much as I wanted to, to try to, to tell my husband the information in pieces and stages, once I saw him, it was just, everything <laughs> just came out, you know, but I, I think um, he is having a hard time saying things to me because he feels like he doesn't want to cry in front of me because if he cries in front of me, then it's going to make me upset. Um, and so I can see that, you know, happening and, and please don't because we're upset anyway, <laughs> you know, the worst thing you could do is keep something from me and that's not fair, you know, for you. And so I've really seen, you know, it's been hard. It's been hard for him. And, you know, as a, as a caregiver, it's been very hard um, because I, there's definitely things that are sort of left, you know, behind. Um, he is afraid that I'm not going to tell him something, you know, so he's constantly asking me how I'm doing, which I know where that's coming from. Um, but, you know, I like, I don't need to tell you every second of the day or every, every detail, but, you know, he needs that for me. I'm learning. So yeah, that was one thing I know that we talked about too, is that, you know, we feel like we're trying to protect someone, uh, but we also rob them of the opportunity of helping us, which in turn right. helps them as, as well. And so a lot of times, I mean, and, you know, it's so funny, like all of your perspectives are very, you know, surgeon-like, you know, the hustle mentality, ignoring <laughs> ourselves, right. you know, yeah. like showing up limping to work because our leg doesn't work, but we're fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> another leg I can still do it it's yeah, okay exactly. you know <laughs> exactly you know yeah. like the, the pushing right. everything we have to decide and yeah. um you know all these things um and but then it of course carries over into how we interact yeah. in times when we need someone and then we right. don't realize that that you know what we offer to someone by allowing them to help us that helpness you know helping someone is not weakness and asking for help is not weakness and in fact right. it it can be very empowering for everybody and that's a lesson I learned, you know, and I'm, and I'm still trying to practice it because, you know, I am very much that like, no, I can do it myself. I'm fine. I can do it myself. You know, that again, that's just how, what are, how our mentality is. Um, and, you know, when, uh, when I was first diagnosed, I mean, then I had all kinds of people doing things for me, you know, I mean, I had you know, one friend and her family came and washed my windows and I needed it and I appreciated it, but it was so hard. I'm like, my friend is washing my windows. Like, this is not okay. You know, I'm walking with a walker. I clearly can't do it myself, but this is not okay. You know, and, but, you know, I think it was a, a patient that told me this years ago. You know, I learned, you know, this from him was that, you know, your loved ones want to do something for you, you know, and they're more than happy to do something like washing your windows, even though it feels absolutely horrible you know, to me. Um, but if you don't at least in some respect, allow them to do it, you know, it, it ends up hurting them too. You know, they want to feel like they've done something to take care of you. And, uh, and it's very hard to allow that sort of help, especially when you're, when you're the kind of person that does everything themselves, but, um, but understanding that, you know, for, for them, it matters to, you know, having that opportunity to help you. And that was, that was the mantra I had to keep telling myself, you know, when, when people were, they were, they were cooking food for us and doing all of these, you know, lovely things, which we very much appreciate, you know, I had to keep telling myself, like, but there, it makes them feel good to do it. And so I have to just let your friends and family help, you know, um, because A, we need it, you know, we do, whether I admit it or not, we do. 
um, but it, it's important, you know, and so it, it's tough. Like I said, mentally, I have to get around that, that stubborn, you know, that stubborn mentality, but, um, you know, it, it's very much important for everybody involved in your life to feel like they're doing something for you, right. even little things. That's great. Um, and so I know that we talked a little bit about identity. Um, and so, you know, a lot of us do have our identity wrapped in work. And what have you learned about your identity since then? How has that changed? Well, I think I've learned that I let work become my identity to a fault. You know, um, you, several years ago, it was funny, I was going to a conference with, um, for, with our palliative care team and I was talking to, you know, one of the nurses and she'd asked me a question as we're sitting in the airplane. And she said, if you weren't a doctor, what would you do? And I admittedly had no answer for her. And I thought it was disturbing that I had no answer. I could not come up with an answer. I couldn't even find something that I could throw in there just to, just to finish the conversation. I said, everything else, I know that there's other things that are there, or at least we're there at some point before medicine, you know, but all of that is, it's not there anymore. And so, you know, I, I thought, okay, well, that's, that's a little disturbing that I, I, you know, work is what it is. I think it's natural that that happens that when you put your whole life into something, um, you know, to achieving something and then, you know, doing that um, all day, every day. And, and now, you know, that again, that I've, I'd say I've lost that and that I can't do that. Um, it, it's a, it's a, a whole new world for me. I'm trying to learn different things and see, you know, what are things I enjoy. Um, but it's emotionally been very difficult because, you know, I, one of the worst parts of not working is not necessarily not even being there per se. It's just not being that person anymore, you know, not being that guy like that you've been, um, you know, for, for years. And uh, that's a struggle. I mean, I, I will admit that's absolutely a struggle. And I say, I wish that I had maybe balanced things out a little bit better <laughs> before this. I don't know if I still wouldn't be going through an identity crisis, losing, you know, um, medicine, but, uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the lesson there is, you know, try to preserve some other aspects of yourself, you know, besides just the career. Um, because if you do wake up one day and you don't have that career, you know, you're not necessarily that guy. Um, what do you do? You know, after we chatted about that, what are some of the things you thought about, about what you would take and what you would leave from work? Well, I think the first, that was a great question and a way to look at it because, you know, dissecting down, well, what is it that's so important to you? Is it, you know, is it the actual, you know, physical work that you're doing? Is it patients? Is it your coworkers? You know, what is it that you miss the most? Um, and, you know, it really is just the people, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, being connected, that's your family, that's sadly your social life, <laughs> you know, you spend more time there than you do with your own family. And, you know, just being in that environment, working with that team, um, you know, that camaraderie, that sort of thing. And, uh, but I, I think that was a great question, you know, that you'd asked me in a way to look at it because, you know, trying to, um, trying to, you know, reconcile sort of this, this position of losing everything and said, well, you know, maybe there's another way to put back the most important parts, you know, like if it's the people, then it's spend find a way to spend time with people, but it's not work, you know, still preserve some of those things. And, um, you know, maybe the hole isn't as big as you think it is, you know, with losing it, you just have to put back the important elements or maybe there's another way to do that. Um, and before you had mentioned that, I hadn't looked at it in that perspective, but I think that that's, 
that's absolutely vital because um, I said when I'm trying to find, well, what is it that I miss and, and what are my options? What can I do going forward? Um, having a good understanding of what it is that's most important, uh, having that clarity, you know, is everything. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, it kind of goes back to the, what we we're talking about with our identity of our jobs, because if you think your only job is to click a button on the EMR. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not missing that much. <laughs> Yes. Which, yeah. And then it's interesting because like, that is the part of the work now you don't have to do. No right. more buttons, but. Yeah. There are parts that you're, you're happy to lose, you know, yeah. <laughs> that I don't miss. And that Mars is one of them. <laughs> I think we all would say the same thing. Yeah. Yes. And, but it's so interesting because you haven't lost your credentials and your knowledge and, you know, your work ethic and your, the people that who matter to you at work and the patients who appreciated you, you know, it's that we feel like um, that we would lose everything, but we forget how far we've actually come. And I think it goes into a theme that I see all the time uh, that we struggle with. We struggle to make decisions and make changes in our life because we've completely devalued or haven't noticed what we have done all along and how we never actually lose right. that. It's something that's intrinsic within us all the time that we actually walk around worthy all the time but you know we make these decisions feeling like we're not um and then of course in your particular case the decision was made for you but right. when you look at it with um uh, with fairness to yourself and you know with actually um understanding a little bit about why we do what we do then you realize you actually have all of these things um already and the one things you're losing are some of the stuff that you're not necessarily unhappy about losing <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, I think that's a, that's an important point. I think for one, you know, I, all of us, our own, our own humility, I mean, we, we don't ever, we don't ever appreciate really, I think the things that we've, we've done, you know, I think it's, it's also human nature of just saying, oh, but I still need this. I need this. I need this, or I could have done that better, you know, that sort of thing. And so, you know, I, 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 I don't think that we recognize, you know, where we've been, um, enough. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, humility is a good thing, but it also, you know, does, does change our perspective that we're not able to see um, our accomplishments necessarily. Um, but, you know, I think I, I, I told myself early on in this, I said, I have to find a way to just be happy with, with that what I've done is enough. So, you know, for example, we spend your whole life trying to, to, you know, just to get to medical school and then get through training and whatever. And, you know, I had 14 years, you know, in my career after um, training. And so I have to say 14 years is a, is a long time. It's not as long as I would have wanted, but I have to just be happy that I had those 14 years and make that 14 years be enough um, that I can say, okay, I've, I've done enough. I had my career, you know, I, I didn't really lose anything per se. Um, it, it all sounds good in theory, you know, still being okay with that emotionally is one thing, but, but I think it's the truth. I, I just have to say, well, you know, I did, I got, I got to do it. You know, I, I got through it. I was able to accomplish that goal, you know, and, uh, and, and I was able to have, you know, 14 years where, where I, where I practiced medicine, you know, as an attending and I got to do what I wanted to do, you know, that has to be enough. I think that your point um, that earlier before we started recording was uh, helpful too, is that, you know, we're part of right now, the great resignation and people leaving medicine and, you know, many people have the option of saying, yes, 14 years was enough and I'm going to choose to do this. And, you know, I know that, that a lot of your struggle has been that 
well, 14 years is enough, but I didn't choose it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's more painful when it's, when it happens to you and it's not, it's not a conscious choice. You know, I, I think that's true. I think the nature of how all of this has, has come about, you know, this wasn't something that I, that I planned for, or I, I decided, or, you know, said it wasn't a retirement. It wasn't, it was, it was the concept of being taken from you. And I think whenever there's something that's quote unquote taken from you, that your, your emotions and sort of around it are, are more negative or just inherently more negative um, because of how it came about, you know, and trying to reframe that, you know, which is what needs to happen. But I think starting out because you start out as something is taken from you involuntarily that by itself just kind of sets the tone for, for how you are, you're processing the change. Yes. And ever since, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about that, that idea of like, what would happen if you go to work one day and this is your very last day at work forever. You know, right. I, I thought about that since then. And it is just so interesting to think of like, what would we do um, in that instance? And yeah. yeah, because, you know, you don't ever, you know, again, no one ever thinks that something like this is going to happen to them. You know, I, I and, and I know it sounds silly. I didn't know this was going to happen. Of course, no one, no one knows. Right. I mean, no one ever knows when they're going to, you know, when you get diagnosed with something, we don't, we don't have that sort of control, but, um, but I really didn't know. I mean, and, and this was, I just wasn't, a, uh, it, it's, it was just so strange and so sudden um, it, it, that it really is hard to, it, it's hard to comprehend any of that, you know, because mm -hmm. it just happened. And, you know, I think we're all human beings. It means we're all subject to the things that any human being is subject to. I mean, it can obviously happen to any of us, clearly at any point, you know, it suddenly just gets taken from you. And that's a, you know, but it does. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, one thing that's that's been very fascinating with uh, that you've learned over time, you know, very similar to your struggle with the insurance company. Tell us a little bit about you know your struggle now with um, with the disability aspect of it. Um, well, and and so I think you know, that all of this is new, right? I've never really been, I've never I've not worked, uh, and so you know, along with you know the emotional aspect of this, there's obviously logistical and financial aspects of this. You know, I'm the breadwinner, you know, my, my husband, you know, he teaches fitness classes, but he doesn't really have any sort of income. Everything is totally relying on me. And so here I am now I can't work. Boom. All of a sudden. And you go, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? You know, um, I, I think, you know, I'm definitely blessed, you know, say so the average person, my goodness, if they don't have any sort of safety net, what do they do? Cause I don't know how we're navigating this. Just think about those poor folks. Uh, but you know, the, the whole process of, of disability, you know, insurance and sort of going through all of that, you know, I, you know, years ago at, at the recommendation of my financial advisor, he said, you need your own, you know, individual disability, you know, supplemental policy. And of course I got it. I said, okay, yeah, it's a, but you know, never think I'm going to need it, but I said, okay, all right, that sounds good. And then I realized going through this, that, you know, thank goodness I had done that, you know, because, you know, we, you, your group disability that you might get through your employer, um, it doesn't get you even close, you know, to, uh, you know, really where you were before. And so if you're, if you're, a, say, a high earner, you know, you have to have an individual policy. Um, so that's the first thing I learned is like, oh, thank God I put that in place before I had a diagnosis, because obviously once you have a diagnosis, you can't get any of those things. Uh, and then, you know, all of the lessons that are 
you know, your grandmother would tell you, it was like, have a rainy day fund. Well, that, yes, have a rainy day fund because in a moment's notice, again, boom, it could all be, you know, taken from me. Um, I learned a lot, you know, with, um, with group disability and sort of how that works in that, you know, there are, we call offsets, you know, where if you, you know, there are, there are things, if you, if you get other benefits or if you have any sort of income um, at all, then that gets deducted from what the disability payment is. So, so the payment itself, I mean, is, is not really 60% of your salary. I mean, so first off, it's, it's much less than that. And then they, of course, will find anything that they can do to, to sort of contract from that. So they are requiring me to apply for social security, which, you know, it's, it's fine, except that takes a while. Um, it's a little concerning to me first because I would like to try to go back to work, you know, if even, you know, part-time or do something, you know, when I'm well, um, I, I like to stay flexible for that. And I don't know that you can do that with social security, but of course they want you to do that because they will offset, they will take out when you get that social security payment, they will take that out of what your monthly benefit is so that they don't have to pay that, you know, anymore. Um, and then when Social Security pays you back, you have to pay all of that back in one lump sum to the disability, the disability insurance company. So I was like, wow, I didn't know any of this worked, how any of that happened. And then if you have any kind of workman's comp or anything else, all of that gets deducted. You know, the other part is, you know, with physician contracts, I mean, a lot of us work on RVU-based, you know, contracts. Well, or the RVU portion of our contract isn't really a bonus, quote unquote, right? I mean, the end result is that you, your total salary is really on par with, you know, where, you know, say 80% of other physicians in your specialty are. Um, so it's not a bonus. It's just the way that that income is calculated. However, when it comes to disability, that's considered a bonus. And so the disability benefit is a portion of what your base salary is, not your total salary. Um, and so it's really not 60% of your salary to begin with. And then all of these, you know, offsets and, and whatnot. Uh, so it's, it's tricky. I didn't know any of this, uh, but they, you know, it, it really, it, it's really a drastic reduction in your salary. And so even with both insurance uh, payments that I have, um, I, my income has dropped by 50%. So, you know, again, you overnight, you, you have X income and then all of a sudden your income drops by 50%. So it's been, it's a, it's a lot. There's all these nuances, all these things that I'm learning, but I didn't know any of this, you know, before. Um, and so I thank God that I got that private insurance, you know, you know, I would tell everybody to get that if they don't have it. Um, but, you know, it's, it, be prepared because, you know, it, it helps, but it's not exactly what you think it's going to be. Yeah, so many lessons and all that too, because you know, in, until we talked about it, I had no idea that that some disability calculations would in, include that. So I think it's so important for people to understand how they're paid, and right. what the consequences um, of that kind of arrangement are if something were to happen. Because you're absolutely right; we never think it's going to happen to us, you know. Right. Um, and when you have these choices of, you know, I feel sometimes overwhelming choices of what to pick and, you know, what to choose and uh, how much you think you need. Um, all of that is just really, you know, especially when you're busy, you're like, I'll just do it later. I'll do it another day, right. I'll do it another right. day, or that won't apply to me, you know, and it's just, um, just like you mentioned, like one day it could happen. And so understanding yeah. those things are critical. Yeah. Yeah. 
I uh, I said when I when I when I got that extra policy, you know, it was just because okay, it sounds good, whatever you say, but like, I never really thought I was going to need it, you know. I never was like, all right, I guess it's a good idea, but you know, I didn't really give it more thought than that, you know, and and uh, so I I was. I had planned ahead just by default. I really didn't plan. You know, I just got lucky that, that I'd made that right decision before. Um, but learning that that's absolutely imperative, you know, especially, you know, I mean, who can have 50% of their income cut overnight? It'll yeah. still be okay because I'm, you know, I'm a physician, but like you still, you go from that to lose half of your income and just think of what that would be like right. and how that would impact your life. What were some of the things that you would tell yourself, your past self? So I think, you know, I, you know, looking back, I mean, obviously the one thing is, you know, what kind of, now, what kind of regrets do I have, right? What, what do I think, what should I have done? And, you know, I think obviously, you know, all those, all the time you say, oh, I'll, I'll answer that phone call later or that email later, or, you know, all of those things I'm like, wow, I should have been better about keeping in touch with, you know, folks. I think, you know, I tell your friends and family, you love them as much as possible, you know? Um, I, I think, you know, I, I started trying to do that years ago and, uh, because you just don't know, you know, and there's, there's no downside in, in saying the things that need to be said, you know, don't let, don't let fights linger, you know, but the biggest thing is, you know, right after I was diagnosed, almost instantly, I started looking around and I realized how many truly stupid things we worry about or we fight over, you know, it's just silly. You know, we, I, I turned on the TV and I would see something right after and I was like, that's just dumb. Why are people even worried about that? Like, why is that even a thing? You know, I know a couple of days ago before I had this diagnosis, I was just like everybody else saying, complaining about this, complaining about that. But then I, I suddenly realized that none of that stuff matters. You know, we're, we're being self-conscious, right? Here's, that's one silly thing. It's like, why didn't we spend time being self-conscious? I know it's, it's normal, but really now does it actually matter? You know, like now that, now that I'm, Obviously, you know, facing a, a, an illness that's going to end my life. I'm like, does any of that really matter? My perspective did change very quickly. And I, there are things that I wish that I had not spent so much time worrying over that were silly. Just being careful what it is that you actually, you know, that you actually fight over. You know, is it worth it? You know, are there, are there things that you worry about? Just really think, is it truly worth it in the grand scheme of things? And most of it, I would say, is not. What would you advise someone who wants to help you? What are some of the things that you need? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just, it, it's just knowing that people are there. I think one of the things that's really helped me the most, I have gotten, you know, I've gotten lots of nice letters, you know, and cards with, with these messages. And, and I'm, I have them actually up on my wall or my sitting so I can see them and be reminded, you know, of the kind of support that I have. You know, that's just nice. I think if you want to help somebody going through this, something like this, you know, just just say hi and just tell them, you know, what you what they mean to you. And um, because those are the things that stay with you, you know, so trying to find strength and, and go forward from one day to the next, um, you know, knowing that and, and hearing those getting those sort of messages from people, I think, is has been the most helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you, you know, the, one of the most um, concerns that I have is like, well, I don't want to bother her. I don't want to overwhelm her. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. what do yeah. you say to the person who's feeling that right now? Well, I'd say it's okay. You know, if I'm, if I'm not feeling well, I just don't answer you right away. Give me a day, you know, <laughs> um, in the beginning, in, in the first, you know, week or two, it was very overwhelming. I will say, 
um, answering the same question over and over and over and over again. And, you know, so that time it's very hard, you know, to answer a, a million, you know, sort of texts and phone calls and, and everybody means well, but as time goes on, you know, and that sort of levels out, I mean, then it, then it's okay. You know, I think past that the first few days, that's a little tough to keep up with all of it. Um, you know, I had uh, some of my friends who were fielding you know, those questions and things for me. And then I realized, oh my gosh, they're getting hit up a lot too. I don't want that to happen. Like, just, just bring it to me, you know, <laughs> don't bother anybody with it. So, you know, a, a drive-by message, just thinking of you, you know, that, that, that means the world. Fantastic. Well, good. So um, what is next for you? Oh, that's a good question. So I have to right now get through these three cycles of, of chemo um, and then kind of get a look at everything. I'm hoping that I will get a break after that. And then the weather is starting to get nice. I can actually get out in public and start doing some things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, my husband and I, like I said, we're, we're beach people, you know, we're ocean people. And so would love to be able to take a trip. You know, of course we, we fell in love with Hawaii. That's not going to happen. The traveling there is just a little too much, but you know, someplace closer. I mean, we have that sort of on the docket once I'm, I'm through chemo, if I can do it to find some, um, something that, that fits. So hopefully, you know, after, well, it would be May, you know, after my chemo is finished, then I'll be able to do something like that. It would be very nice. Fantastic. And then beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> You know, I, I really don't know. Um, just have to kind of kind of see. I, I know I'm going to be on and off treatment until, you know, it doesn't work anymore. But I, I don't know what that time frame is going to look like. You've been through uh, so much and the lessons learned that you've learned over time, both with H1N1 and the COVID and MS and, and now with this new cancer diagnosis. I mean, I think you have so much to offer uh, the world, opportunity for people to learn a little bit more about um, all of these aspects um, so we can you know, make the world just a better place. And I think that you've made a huge contribution to making the world a better place just by being in it. Well, as have you, <laughs> no, but, but thank you so much. And I think it, it's just, it's the lesson that we all knew, but we, we sort of forget and that life is precious. And at any moment, to any one of us, something could happen drastically. Keep tabs on what's most important to you. That's all I could say. Because you, you love every, you appreciate every day, love everybody around you. That's, I think, the, the most important lesson we could all learn. And what a great way to, to end this uh, interview. So I look forward to seeing you, of course, more often. <laughs> Absolutely. Find more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series at bosssurgery.com.